Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. I am more than a maker. More than an athlete. More than a pastor. Chata Elifinachili. I am Choctaw proud. We are the Choctaw Nation, and together we're more. I tossed my hair, my braids glowing in the sunlight. I walked my horse forward, recalling Papa's words, often said in a most authoritative tone, get off that pony and walk in the flowers, little bird. Touch the flowers and feel their petals. They are soft like feathers. Touch the bark of the trees. Their bark runs in circles like our lives. The tree grows roots and spreads leaves over the earth. The lines of the bark tell many stories of our ancestors. It is a time for you to remember and enjoy the beauties of God's land. Get off your horse, little bird. I would be mesmerized by his words. I looked up to see my three favorite crows on a branch above. They took off leading the way home. Their feathers glistened in the sun like my hair. You'll find these lovely words and the story of the crows or truth talkers called Fala and the accounts of Esther Micklish or Little Bird, as she would, was called by her loved ones in the book aptly named Little Bird, written by my guest, Mary Ruth Barnes. Mary Ruth, Holly Toe, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk. Sukma. You know, I started reading Little Bird one afternoon and I just couldn't put it down. There really are so few books out there that put you in that space in your mind where you can almost see and feel what it was like for our people living in Indian territory after removal, you know, the way they lived and the fear they constantly faced about possibly once again losing their land. So I wanted to say thank you for giving your readers this opportunity to experience this world. You know, thank you from me. <laughs> but this isn't a purely fictional story. Tell us about the ancestors who inspired you to write this book. Well, my grandfather was probably my greatest influence, and I spent a lot of time with him during my childhood growing up, probably what we call the speaking and learning years. Uh, I lived on his farm or ranch during the week while my parents worked in Oklahoma City, and so he took a lot of time teaching me the Chickasaw language and a lot of the customs and cultures and his love of horses and his love of nature and the earth, and he always talked about um, different words to me and how he would say to me, um, uh, he would say um, words that built around the land and he would tell me, let's go get the horse and we'd go out and he'd whistle for the horse and I didn't see any horses. I didn't see any cattle and he'd make me lay on the floor and put my ear down on the ground and I'd sit there and all of a sudden I'd hear the vibration and feel the vibration of the land and the earth moving and they would come up over the hill and he would tell me feel the horses feel them moving on the earth and those kind of things just put me into a state of Chickasaw dreams and Chickasaw life and culture and I just felt that he was the greatest influence 
on me wanting to know more and more about the Chickasaw people. Oh my gosh, just that story alone just gets me so excited. We have so many cool things to talk about today. <laughs> uh, sounds like he was a great influence on your life, starting you know, with him and then going backwards through some of your ancestors from there. So listeners, you are in for a treat today as Mary Ruth will share some passages from her book. But again, this isn't just a book about some people. It's the story of her ancestors and their stories fall right in the middle of some of the crucial events going on in first Americans history at the time. There's so much to talk about here, but first I'd like to share a bit about this distinguished author. So Mary Ruth Barnes graduated with a bachelor's degree from North Carolina State with high honors and a master's from Montana State. After college, Barnes taught high school and college English, art, and computer science for 14 years. Barnes is both an author and artist who has won numerous awards for her art and has had several short stories and watercolors featured in issues of the Journal of Chickasaw History and Culture, Ishtanola. Her watercolors are on display at the Chickasaw Nation Medical Center, the new Artesian Hotel, the Davis, Oklahoma Welcome Center, and the Capitol offices of the Chickasaw Nation in Oklahoma City. And if that wasn't enough, y'all, she was selected as Chickasaw Dynamic Woman of the Year for 2015. And in 2017, she was elected for, for the Registry of Native American Artists located in the Heard Museum in Scottsdale, Arizona. In 2017, Mary Ruth retired from a career as director of planned giving for American Cancer Society, where she raised over $35 million for cancer research. Her artwork, Fight of Hope, is currently featured in the Cancer Journal of Native American Research and additionally is on display in the surgery waiting room of the Chickasaw Nation Medical Center. In 2022, Barnes was inducted into the Chickasaw, Chickasaw Hall of Fame, and then Mary Ruth and her husband have two sons, six grandkids, and they enjoy traveling in their retirement and live on a ranch in South Central Oklahoma, which I'm so upset I'm not there today. We were going to try to record there, but uh, life got in the way. But there's there's so much more to her list of accomplishments, but I digress. Something I loved about our first conversation, Mary Ruth, was how much we had in common. And after I read the book, I realized not only do we have a lot in common, but our ancestor stories were also very familiar. So tell us about where you live and the history of the pecan trees. Well, I live on 160 acres that my father bought in 1946, which was before I was born. And it was about a half a mile from uh, Harry McSwain, which you'll learn about in the book, and their farm. And we spent every weekend, all the time we possibly could on the farm. And my, my dad would take me to the 160 acres that was our land. And we would plant things and we would go to the pond and fish and look for turtles and fossils, lots of fossils. Mm -hmm. And so my dad wanted to plant some pecan trees. And so when I was seven or eight years old, we planted these little seedlings. And now I walk this land where there are 19 pecan trees that I helped plant with my father when uh, I was seven years old. And so these, um, I won't tell you exactly how old I am, but these pecan trees are over 50 years old. So they're huge. Wow. And, and they just touch my heart when I walk around them and that land and know that I spent so much time there with my ancestors, uh, something that touches my heart from the past. 
it feels like something we should all do something similar to that where years later we can come back and have those memories of planting with our children or our children remembering planting with us. That's such a great memory. I love that. Um, I was telling you earlier, I had looked by satellite over the land in that area. It's absolutely beautiful. It looks like a little slice of heaven out there in Oklahoma. Um, so, and you're an equestrian rider too, correct? Yes. My grandfather actually, um, the Chickasaw grandfather gave me my first horse when I was five years old and taught me how to ride. And so from there, the love of horses extended into my marriage with my husband, who also loved horses. And we raised over 27 head of horses uh, over a period of about 20, 23 years. We showed reigning horses. And in 2006, we won a junior uh, world champion reigning uh, horse at the Congress in Wichita, Kansas. And that wow. was called First Rate Fuego. So we really <laughs> delved into showing horses and spending a lot of time raising beautiful horses. So um, I was able to live that dream for, you know, the early part of our marriage. And it was great. And how nice is that, that your husband was into it also? Because as we know, they're a big responsibility, they're costly, but they're so wonderful to have. So it's nice yes, that you were are. able to do that together. And I think it was also funny that I had told you when we were talking the other day that I live a good amount of my time in Barrington, Illinois, in addition to Oklahoma, but Barrington, Illinois is also horse country. And it turns out you also used to live like, I don't know, 10 minutes down the road from where I live right now. Yes, I actually lived there in 1975 and 76 and love the um, bookstore called the Old Chowder there. It was wonderful. I used to take my baby in the stroller and go down and have a cup of chowder and peruse the bookstore there. It was wonderful. Oh, that's so cool. Love those bookstores. Support the small bookstores. Yes, definitely. <laughs> or any bookstore, really. Yeah, small <laughs> world, though. Um, yes. And I drove by that house the other day that you lived in, took a little picture. I hope the owners didn't see me do that. But I just had to see where it was you lived in. It's this charming house in downtown Barrington. But so anyway, your book, Little Bird, was published via Chickasaw Press. And it's about your great, great, great grandmother, Esther, and her story living in Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. Little Bird won two Ippy Awards in 2022, the gold for the cover design and a silver for best Midwest regional fiction. So just for our listeners, First American is another term for Native Americans, just letting y'all know in case there are questions about that terminology. Tell us about your tribal affiliations. Well, my uh, great-great-grandmother, Esther, um, her father was full-blood Cherokee, Jesse Wilson. And of course, he came over on the Trail of Tears. And uh, he married a woman named Cynthia Collins, and she was Choctaw, and she also came with missionaries. So um, my, my great-great-grandmother was half Cherokee and half Choctaw, and then she married and outlived four Chickasaw men, which one of which was my great-grandfather. So this is, I have all three tribes in me, which is wonderful. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, that's that's great. And, you know, we're going to learn a lot more about those husbands and some of the things that she went through. It's quite a story. So I'd love to walk through portions of your book together in just a moment. moment. But before that, what can you tell us about your ancestors prior to Esther? I personally was just curious. I've read the book and I was thinking, what happened prior to some of that? Do you know much about those stories prior to enduring the Trail of Tears? 
My grandfather told me stories that Esther had shared with Ella, his mother, and and she said that that Jesse uh, Wilson came over on the Trail of Tears and lost a good portion of his family, and he was very close and very good friends with John Ross, which was a big leader of the Cherokee Nation, and when he got to Oklahoma, Cynthia Collins had come over and both of her parents had been killed on the Trail of Tears. Died in, I don't know, a wagon accident or something, but she had no parents. So she was raised by Methodist Choctaw missionaries and that's how they met. And then my great-great-great-grandfather, uh, uh, Jesse Wilson, became a Methodist preacher as well. So, so and then how did Esther's father meet his wife? Okay, well, Esther's um, father uh, was actually working in the in uh, missionary in Mayhew, Oklahoma, and he was working with some Methodist missionaries. And the Choctaw people came in there bringing some of the children and some of the adults that had lost families. And they got, you know, connected and introduced. And the story goes that Jesse just immediately fell in love with Cynthia and that they spent a lot of time uh, with the the children that were not theirs because they weren't married at the time, but with children that had lost their parents and fell in love with helping through their missionary journey. And that's how they fell in love with each other. So I love that. And, and then Esther herself is she's Cherokee and Choctaw, correct? Yes. She's Cherokee okay. and Choctaw and she married and outlived four Chickasaw men. So Wow. Tough woman, man. Yes, she was. Wow. So I, I started with an excerpt out of your book, which mentioned the crows that Esther encounters. And I love that Esther's father calls her little bird. And then there's also the mention of birds, the crows mentioned throughout. And there's sort of this like love hate relationship from my perspective that you experience between Esther and the crows as you go through the book. And in, in the beginning, she seems young and vibrant, ready to face the world. And the crows seem to be her friends. But as time goes on and her journey unfolds, the crows don't always bring the best news. So she seems to sort of resent them a bit, but I wanted to ask you as an author, you know, is that a correct interpretation? How do you see her relationship with the crows? I don't think she actually resented them. I think uh, she honored them and respected them because that's the information her father had given her as a little girl. And to, to trust that they would come and reveal something important to her and they would they would uh, intercede any lies and they would always bring her the truth. That's why they were called the truth talkers. But over time, the crows seemed to come at moments when there was tragedy in her life and it would precede a day before or something, she would see them and then there was tragedy. And so right. she, over over time, she just became frustrated with them. She wanted them not to arrive because when they came, it wasn't good news and it or it wasn't a, a truth that she wanted to know about. And so I don't think she resented them as much as she feared what they were bringing to her. And so ah. she just wanted she wanted some space and some time. She wanted them to go away and not keep showing up. And right. I think that's what the reader will eventually see as they go into the book that she still honored and loved those crows. 
Interesting. Yeah. And there, it really was one thing after another. I mean, when I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. It was just, I, and there are honestly, I've read so many books over the years that it's not like there's that many books that just keep me on edge like that so much. I was like, oh my gosh, this just happened. And now the chapter's over. Okay. I'll just read one more chapter. Who needs sleep, you know, (laughs) but I love how the mention of the crows is peppered in throughout the book. For example, another passage reads, the three crows sat on the rail near the shed. The biggest one scooted back and forth, pecking at the wood, while the others followed him like cows. Rufus, that's Esther's twin brother, lifted his hat to shoo them away. I grabbed Rufus's arm. Oh, leave the truth talkers alone. They aren't bothering anyone. What are you talking about, Esther? You have such full stories, Rufus teased. He dodged when I tried to pelt him with the rope. (laughs) Don't you remember Papa's story about the three crows? I asked him. Papa told us if there are three crows following you, they are bringing a truth to you. Two carry the burden of the lie and the third crow, the larger one, is the truth talker. You are supposed to watch them and be polite. They may bring news you want to hear someday. So I mentioned that Esther eventually seemed to dislike the crows over time but it sounds like she just needed a break. So she sees them sometimes um, almost like a bad omen in those moments where she's already had bad news and then she feels like, oh, they're bringing her more bad news. Um, So why don't you share an example? Okay, I'll be happy to. This is from page 149. I did not want the girls to fear them as often I did. Papa told me they were there to watch over me. But I had not seen the truth from these creatures to be anything but bad news. I waved my straw hat at them. They cawed and flew off to another tree. I had hoped we would have a quiet afternoon without disturbances. I rendered a prayer that the crows would not visit me anymore to warn me of something bad happening. But as I thought, the hair began to raise on my arms. Oh, So these thoughts from Esther were after she had children. And these words are a far cry from how Esther was feeling in her younger years. So you listeners may be wondering why the change of tune when it comes to the crows or those truth talkers, as she called them. Once you read the book, you'll see where this shift comes from and rightfully so. Mary Ruth, your great, great, great grandmother, Esther, went through so much. Her story is one heartbreak after another, as we were saying. And yet I have to say, on the other hand, it's also delightful, the book, and in so many ways, that strength of the human spirit that shows in Esther's life and in her journey throughout the book, it it really is inspiring. Okay. So tell us where the book starts. Well, the book begins in 1900 when Esther is summoned to Colbert in Indian Territory, and she's there to meet with the DAS commissioner. She's received several letters and notices over time uh, where she has to go, and she feels like it is necessary that she go there because she's on a mission to get her youngest son or youngest child She had five girls before this boy, Holmes McClish, and she's after getting him on the roll. The other girls had roll numbers, but this boy did not. And she repeatedly is questioned over and over again by these Dawes commissioners. There are five white men that are in control of these questions, and they would travel all over the area of Indian Territory, and she would have to bring proof of marriage to this man 
document or proof of a date where something happened and documentation. And of course, documentation back then was very scarce. Yeah. So she was diligent in keeping that information. And if you look in the back of the book, there are scan documents that will shock you that I was able to locate where she kept these papers and these marriage licenses. Some of them were handwritten, but signed by important people. And uh, the book begins that journey of frustration for her and getting this last son on the road. And that's interesting too. I think we will talk about the Dosros a little later, but the idea that, okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about when all of us are searching for our native ancestors. We're looking for people that were signed up into the Dawes roles and then that lineage passes down on down to us. And when they signed up on the Dawes roles, they also had these things called Dawes packets. And that's where they would be interviewed about, it was basically trying to prove that they were Chickasaw or in this case, uh, whole, little homes needed to be on the rolls and and registered and she's trying to prove who she is and who her son is and who his father is and all of these things. So when we, for for your sake, when you were researching, I assume this is where you found all of those, um, some of these conversations she has in the book, are those directly from those DOS packets? They were transcribed almost like a trial. And it's just shocking to many researchers that I have discussed this with that there were 78 pages in Ancestry of her discussion of grueling interviews. And they were not nice to her. They did not say kind things to her and repeatedly over and over would say the same thing that you would feel her frustration as if these men did not even hear her or I think she in the book you'll yeah. see she thought maybe they were hard of hearing or they thought she was stupid or something because they would ask her the same questions over and over and these commissioners were the same people but what I didn't realize as I read about the Dawes Commission that these men actually got a bonus check for anybody that they were not able to place on, on the role. So they made money by denying people uh, a role number and, and an allotment. And uh, it was quite a Whoa. bit of money. So this probably, uh, probably a revelation to you and a lot of people yes. that you did not realize that they actually got a bonus for keeping people. And so if you, if you, if you moved into an area where there were Choctaw and Chickasaw people and maybe even Creek or Seminole, you gathered together a lot of the time. So there was intermarriage, always yeah. intermarriage of these tribes. But unless you were born Choctaw and married Choctaw and had, then you weren't a part of that census that kept you on the Dawes Commission rolls. So this right. is why they were trying to prove any of these that were not married even though they could be full blood you know they could be full blood first americans they still took away their rights by grueling them about you know who they were married to and this kind of thing so you're walking among brothers and sisters in our first american group that possibly don't have a roll number because they didn't have an ancestor that took the strength and courage that esther had to make this happen and my book is there to honor her for that very Absolutely. reason alone. For, her, for that very reason alone. Man. 
again, that's, this is news to me right now, live in front of y'all listeners. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, I, I didn't realize when you're saying it's such a good point that they had to go fight those Dawes commissioners basically to try to yeah. get on the rolls. I didn't realize it was such a struggle. So wow. It was. It, and the census, when the census started going around and the census takers might be uh, Indian, they might be white, depending on who was assigned to go, but they would go from yard to yard. That's what it was called then instead of 160 acres or an allotment. It's, you know, I would be in your yard and then a mile and a half down the road, I'd be in someone else's yard, but they would go. And if, if my two children were out plowing in the field, then they wouldn't even count them as being Indian on that census roll when they came by. You all had to be there at the same time. So when you pull up census in Ancestry or wherever you're looking and researching, you'll see sometimes there'll be three children in the same family and then the two oldest ones won't be there. If you go back a little further, you'll see the two older ones, but it's because they yeah. are doing something else. So that is so scary that she was so dependent on that, you know, and every time she went, you know, those kind of questions came up. Uh, they wanted to, um, you know, question even her children that were born to full blood Chickasaw men. Um, was she actually really married to this man? You know, so she had to prove this over and over again. They went back in her life almost 20 years each time that she met with them. So when I kept reading, I, she'd be in Colbert or she'd be somewhere else down and she would put five children in a wagon and drive for mm. 10 days to get to meet for a half an hour with Dawes commissioners. And she would do that over and over and over again until it wow. finally happened. And I mean, it wasn't an easy journey or an easy trip for her to do that. So oh, she she just impressed me with her resilience and drive. She was definitely a dynamic First American woman. Yes. I know all of you, but I've shared Little Bird's story now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean that's just so powerful. And I also, you know, there's an Abner Coley on some of my ancestor censuses, and then he just drops off, and then he comes back, and I'm always like. Was he really one of their sons? So I never knew that. Maybe he was out playing, yes, you know, exactly. or tending to cattle or whatever it was. Oh, this is so interesting. <laughs> There's so much cool stuff to cover. So, okay. So it starts off with him, her fighting with these Dawes Commission folks. And then she starts looking back and recalling the events of her life, both both fond and heartbreaking memories. So let's take a deeper dive into that story. First, let's talk about some of the folks in the book. Again, these are your ancestors. Who are those? I want to say characters, but they're real people. They're real people and of real events. Um, Esther, um, you wanted me to mention something about her. And I would categorize her as being the most resilient woman I've, I've ever known. I didn't meet her, but I know her. Yeah. Um, and she was always interested in her father's interest. She followed him so closely in his beliefs and his interest in council meetings. She she was a tomboy and she mm -hmm. was a protector of all her siblings. So you will find out even more about her character. But those are kind of 
the key points I want you to, as a writer, I want you to know an author yeah. about her. Uh, her mom, Annie, was Choctaw and she was a homemaker. Um, she, oh, that's all she did, but she was extremely religious because she lost her parents and she was raised by, you know, um, Methodist missionaries. She was kind hearted and she was humorous. She kept her <laughs> husband from being so serious sometimes. Yeah. And she, and she um, was one of those women who I think stood by her husband no matter what he wanted to do. Um, her dad, um, her father, Jesse, was Cherokee. And as I say, he was a leader. He was a preacher. Uh, he had the influence of John Ross. Um, he was, John Ross was his mentor. He loved him with all his heart. He was a strong caregiver. And as I say, he was very involved heavily in any council meetings, any neighborhood meetings, any place he could go and learn about the treaties and what was happening so that he would not ever have to experience his land being taken away from him again. And he believed he had to stay on top of that no matter what. And he instilled that in Esther. She carried that with her all her life. Uh, Rufus was Esther's twin brother. And Rufus was um, Esther's love. They thought a lot alike. They spent a lot of time hunting and fishing together. That was her tomboy side. But yet she was extremely devoted to him. He lived close to her uh, before his passing. And you'll hear more about her relationship with him as time goes on. Lottie is her sister. It, Lottie came first. She always seemed in all the stories that I found about Lottie that she was the weaker of the of the three children. She was never healthy. Uh, she stayed by her mother's side. She kept uh, the homemaking going and the cooking and the sewing with her mother. And she relied on Esther to be the brave one and kind of the protector. And Esther brought her gifts all the time when she Aww. would go out in nature and share that with her. And I felt the, the closeness that she felt with Lottie. It was interesting in my research that I found Lottie's great-great-great-granddaughter in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we connected oh. uh, through Ancestry. And um, her name is Rosemary Holderman. And I'm sure she will let me say this because uh, I mentioned her at the end of my book. But we met. We got together. We have spent lots of time together. Uh, she shared Lottie's family tree where it ended and, and then began and grew. And we spent a a whole afternoon with a long row of butcher block paper trying to oh. design our tree together. And right. I was so grateful for her to find her and connect with her. And we have been spending a lot more time together. And it's been a blessing oh. that I found this distant cousin of mine, which, I is, love my, it. which is my great, great, great grandmother's sister's great, great, great granddaughter. So it's just very exciting. It's yet another reason to get on Ancestry.com because yeah. that's the way I found so many relatives too. Did you find her through DNA match or? I found her through DNA match. And, okay. and what I did in the shared search is I went to find anybody that was related to that path 
that was the Native American side of me. And because okay. it showed that I was Native American. So she was far distant in that path, but she cropped up. And it was just so wonderful when I reached out to her because she had so many unanswered questions about Esther and Rufus right. that right. I was able to fill in the blanks oh, for I her. Love it. <laughs> and she filled them in for me. So it was very exciting. And then you'll read in the back of the book, she actually shared a story that her great uncle wrote about Esther. Uh, because I still haven't found where Esther died, and I'm still working on that. Oh. And he he shared that Esther was over 90 when he thought he saw her, and Ada, Oklahoma, still riding her horse. So we'll see yes. if that's in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, there is, is a sequel. Spoiler yes. alert, there is a sequel. We're going to talk about that, too, at the end. Um, so, Lottie, do you know why she was weak? Do you know what she was sick from or anything like that? The only thing that we can figure out is possibly she had maybe um, um, scarlet fever or or maybe it was uh, consumption because yeah. I know that's what uh, consumption is what Esther's father died of. And so okay. that was the early form of TB, tuberculosis, yeah. it was called consumption. But okay. um, I know she was extremely weak all of her life. And so... Um, so that's the only thing we can think of. There is um, a, a, an episode in several of the, that family that had leukemia. So she could have had a sickness that was similar to that, that they didn't know about back then. But yeah, uh, she was, Aww. she was the weaker one, but she did, you will find out she did marry and she did have a child. So um, it is a blessing that she lived that long, but she seemed to be the weaker of the three growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was curious about that when I was reading, I was trying to think of what it could have been and so many diseases and sicknesses. They didn't know a lot about back then, of course. They really so. didn't know. Yes. So Esther and her family. So Esther, was she born in Choctaw country? She was born in Choctaw country. Her, her father um, and mother lived in that area of Mayhew, but then they moved away from there because her father feared the, the Cherokees, which was his own tribe, were much more violent than he wanted to be. And his faith and his belief moved away from that. And so he wanted to move with the Choctaws and be closer to some people that he felt like were calmer and quieter and less angry. Uh, he wanted to just get along and keep his land. And so he moved away from his people, the Cherokee, because of the violence that was going on. Okay. That makes sense. And, and um, so since we're both horse people, <laughs> tell yeah. us about her paint pony. Okay. Esther's horse thunder um, was always shared in stories that my grandfather told me. And her, yeah. her horse was named Thunder. He said that Esther could ride like the wind and she would ride into a storm and thunder would take her through all of that. And so I always tell people my favorite words describing my grandfather describing things to me is he taught me the quiet excitement for life. Hmm. Embracing nature is a basis for love. And that's a statement I've made for a long, long time. Oh. Now, if you take those two words, quiet excitement, yeah, you hold on to a picture of a man whose soft spoken Indian nature just comes yeah. across with the beauty, 
yet every voice and every part of his voice brings into you excitement. And so if you can mellow that tone into a beauty that just flows, flows out like a flute of music that just encompassed you, that's what he was like. And as I told you the story about Esther and riding her horse, he always said she had a way with horses and, and she passed it on to his mother, Ella, and they just knew everything there was to know about a horse. He taught me about the horse's skin and how sensitive it was. And he would tell me, put your finger on the skin of a horse and it would flick or flinch. And he said, yeah. that's why a horse can flick off a fly when it lands. So right, it's like the could, shaking. Can, yes, it will shake and flick it off. He said, they are so sensitive. They are sensitive to you, my child, and listen to them because they have a lot of knowledge to give you. And so he expressed to me this horse thunder was just an extremely personal part of Esther's life. And so I had to make that a part of the story of Esther going forward. Definitely. It, it makes you think about, you know, obviously our, our first Americans go way back with the horses after the Spanish brought them over and, and all that. And some of them were very fine horsemen and women. My great-grandmother used to hop on her white horse and she was housed with a guardian a non-native garden guardian who raised her and she would get on that horse and ride hard and fast. And they'd say, get off that horse. And she would just be like, no, I'm not getting off the horse. This is my horse. And it was her time to be defiant. She loved that white horse. And it just, when I was going through this with you in this book, it was just like, oh, there's so many. And her name was Ella. So oh my goodness. Kind of interesting. <laughs> we do have a lot in common, don't we? <laughs> we do. Right. You're amazing. Right. Well, Esther, I, I, think, I think it's important that, that people understand that 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 when they crossed the Mississippi River, one of the things that they brought, one of the only things they could bring with them were their horses. And right. they brought their horses with them. The Chickasaws had their own horses and there is a breed called the Chickasaw horse and they brought those with them. And so, um, you know, that, that was something that carried some of their belongings or whatever. Right. They didn't have wagons. So the horses were members of their family. Wow. And, and kind of probably the only thing they could bring with them. One of the few things they could bring with them. Exactly. So, so we talked about how Esther went through so much she seemed to have loved and lost many times over in her lifetime how she went through so much and stayed so strong is definitely beyond me so let's talk about her first love Benjamin Frazier how did they meet and approximately what year was it remind me that that they met um well it was 1867 um Esther was 12 and the, they were neighbors and they played together a lot. But the first time Esther really actually met uh, Benjamin when she was 12 was when her father took her and Rufus deer hunting. Hmm. And they were going along um, a path that, and Rufus had shot the deer and they were carrying it on the back of Rufus's horse and walking. And Dixon, Frazier, and Benjamin came along. And I think at that moment when she first saw Benjamin, and he was four years older than her, but she mm -hmm. was definitely um, blushing and attracted to him just seeing this nice looking young man that she hadn't seen probably yeah. 
ever. So <laughs> as time went on, um, I think the more uh, Benjamin learned about um, Esther's love of the horses and her her attraction to thunder, uh, they became friends. And when the the whole family would get together for meals or whatever they would play together as a group, but she never had a moment alone with him. And I think the first time that that happened was a couple of years later when her mother encouraged her to go fishing with Benjamin. He came mm -hmm. over to ask her to go fishing. And Rufus was out cleaning a deer that he had killed. And so he didn't want to go. I think originally Benjamin asked you know, Rufus to go. And so the mother encouraged her to go because she loved to fish. So Esther yeah. went. And at that moment, I think they really kind of uh, sparked that love that they had. And I think in all the story, as you read it, that first love is her best love. It will be mm -hmm. the love she carries in her heart all her life. I think that that was a special love. It's really funny that you say that because I was kind of curious if you had a feeling of which which of her suitors she was most in love with so well Aww. I and you'll find as the story goes along in her relationship with her mother-in-law that I think that that carries true that she had a strong relationship with Benjamin's mother that I think that 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 relates to all of her strong feelings for Benjamin yeah that she kept all her life after he passed so uh, but my grandfather said that you know she loved love to go fishing and that probably Benjamin was that's where it sparked was that time they went yeah. to fishing together so oh, she married so at 14 um and he was 19 which is common back then that that seems young yeah. but but at 14 or 15 if you weren't married by then there was something usually wrong with you they would say you know? <laughs> and they didn't live as long back then they had no, to they pop out a bunch of kids and yes exactly yeah. Well, tell us more about their, their love story. What would you like our listeners to know? Well, I think mainly is how they met. And then um, they, they decided to build a life together on the Blue River. And so she left home and she must have loved him a lot because the Frasers had other horses. And so she left Thunder with her mom and her sister uh, because they needed um, a horse, you know, to use on the on the farm. And so I think it was it was just um, she loved him so much. She was willing to go uh, with him and leave her comfort zone because she never wanted to move away from her land. And so yeah. she moved uh, close to the Blue River because she loved Benjamin so much. And I think that uh, she loved the family that Benjamin had there, her, both the parents. So um, yeah. I, think, I think it was a special love that they had. Yeah, it sounds like it. And you really get that feeling when you're describing it, when you're reading your descriptions in the book about their time together. So I mentioned before how I love that you included what was going on in first Americans history and in Indian territory just scattered throughout the book. So tell us about that. What was going on at that time? Well, I think, I don't think I've shared this with you, but I'd like to tell you that when I first wrote the book, I started with a timeline and an outline because I wanted to do everything sequential. And yeah. so every year that she did something um, that I found out in those Dawes role interviews, 
I started researching the history of what happened in Indian territory at that time, because the people were re real and the events were real. So I wanted all of the surroundings of occurrences to be real around Esther so that everybody would experience that true historical lifespan that she had. And so my first book that I wrote that I submitted to the Chickasaw Press was in third person. And it contained huge amounts of history that I had yeah. delved in and researched. So you're probably first to find this out, but that's the way the book began. And ah. after a year of kind of going through and verifying all of my historical pieces that I put in the book and the cultural center with the Chickasaw Nation verified all the marriages and the events and everything was true to form, my editor and I sat down and she felt as much as I did that there was an emotional piece to this that needed to have a bigger story. And so uh, we decided to change the book to first person and let mm -hmm. Esther tell the story and let her tell the history as she experienced it in conversation with the people she was around and the events that were going on. And so in that case, it became not only an historical fiction, but became a real moved like a fictional story so that people could get wrapped in more of the actual events and understand them more because Esther was telling them as she saw them and as it was happening. So it really is true to form that during that time, there were a lot of things that happened in Indian territory. And she was able to share those things as those went on the building of the town to Shemingo, the things that happened at the Capitol building, the moving of the bell and all kinds of things that went on that we knew happened during that time in Johnson County. And she was able to, in conversation, going back and forth to town and her different husbands that had different jobs, one a constable and one a national jailer, that she really was involved in what was happening in history. So I'm delighted that my editors were in agreement with me uh, that we were changing the book to first person. Yeah, and that's it's those where little I things. Share the emotions that she had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it really does make it more human, makes you realize. And, and there's even a little bit of fear in there of what's happening. If you think about it, they watched their or heard of their ancestors. In Esther's case, it was her mother and father had come over during the removal on what's now known as the trail of tears that was they had told her all about it they had kind of made that part of her world that she just knew that these things had happened and that's why her dad's like you have to keep up on current events and what's going on and then sure enough things are going on that they're hearing rumblings of they might open land back up for non-natives for settlers and it's a scary time i can only imagine that unrest that I had always known about, but never really felt it like I did in the book. Big news, y'all. One of my favorite Choctaw authors, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, has a new writing course called Fiction Writing American Indians. This course is going to show you how to discover the insight you need to write quality, authentic stories, learn practical approaches to researching Native cultures, and get answers to hard questions. I'll be taking the same course, so I invite you to take it with me. Just go to AmericanIndians.FictionCourses.com, but don't forget to use the code CHOCKTALK, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. 
okay when you're checking out so you can get $30 off. Yep, you're welcome. Learning stuff and saving money. Let's do this. So in this time, what was happening in Choctaw country? And you mentioned the Cherokees earlier. What was going on with all of them and the Chickasaws, of course? Well, what happened was, you know, um, the railroad came into the area. It brought a lot of white settlers coming in, mostly cattle ranchers, into that area. Uh, there became uh, issues of unrest, cattle rustling and cattle stealing, um, dissension between the white people that were there. Um, the Irish, a lot of Irish settlers came into that area at the time. And so uh, there was a lot of, um, what do you call, crime that was happening. And so it wasn't safe. I mean, Esther learned to carry a, a pistol in her apron, you know, wherever she went. <laughs> and, you know, the Comanches were out to the west and there was dissension with them between the Choctaws and the Chickasaws and the Comanches. Uh, there was unrest up north with the Cherokees. And so they, they lived in a very unsettling time. And then there was the resentment that uh, a lot of the white settlers were coming in and marrying Indian women so they could get more land when all of this Dawes Commission came up. So there was a huge amount of resentment there uh, going mm -hmm. on because they felt like the uh, the men were just coming in there in order to marry Indian women. Right. And and then get more land. So, and then um, uh, the white people brought in the the alcohol and the whiskey, and so there was a lot of uh, stills going on in backwoods and things like that. So it just became more and more complicated for women who uh, possibly widowed early or mm -hmm. widowed more than once. They were in the survival of the fittest, and many of them did remarry a lot uh, when they lost their husbands because that was the only way they could survive yeah. in that world. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that was how they, they made it through times like that. Oh yeah. And that, that hit home for, for them because, you know, I talked about the great loss that Esther suffered. The start of that was the death of her own father, which was seemed like a significant event in her life affected the whole family. How did he die? Well, her papa, he was, he became weak over a period of about a year um, that I learned that he was not able to take care of the land by himself. And he was a pretty strong man, man prior to that. And so he was relying on his, you know, his 10 and 11 and 12 year olds to help him with the land and to do things. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I, I don't think my grandma grandfather was ever really sure exactly what he died of, but because of the stories that he had of him coughing and spitting up blood, which was going on, and that my grandfather knew this story, I'm assuming he died of consumption, and yeah. which, which is tuberculosis. So I think that's what happened to him. But so um, uh, but I know Esther took to heart there's a big issue about um, men being put in the back of a wagon when they die. And she had a big thing with that. And my grandfather had the same issue shared with me that he hated the fact that, you know, people were wrapped in a blanket and put in the back of a wagon when they were, you know, killed or hung or whatever. And so yeah. wagons, wagons kind of carried a, 
kind of a bad omen to a lot of people. And he felt that. And I think probably Esther felt that. That's interesting. Something I hadn't heard before, but that would make sense. Kind of has that yucky connotation of uh-huh. loss and death. And and so with Esther, that hard news about her daddy, she also found out some good news though. Again, she's married to Benjamin. They find out they're going to have a baby. But then what happened to the baby? The baby was three months old and became very sick. And they spent a lot of time taking the the baby to different um medicine men or helpers that would try to find out what was wrong. And I really think that the baby died of scarlet fever because uh, there was a there was a lot of the Cherokees were coming down from north and even from over from Arkansas and scarlet fever was running rap, rapid at that time. And I think that probably somehow that baby got exposed to that either through one of them that didn't know they had it. And, you know, and Esther mm. could have had it, uh, but just not a severe case of it, you know, yeah. and gave it to the baby. But the baby died at three months old, which was a huge tragedy for Esther and Benjamin. That's so sad. That part of the story was just so heartbreaking. It's like her dad and then her baby and oh. And she named so, the baby Jesse after her father, which was so sweet. I thought that was so oh, sweet. I love that. And again, these are real people. These are their real stories. So her strength surely came from her faith in God or Abba Benili and the love of her husband. But tragedy, again, struck that year, y'all. A tragedy warned of by the crows who caught at Esther when her husband, Benjamin, hadn't returned from a trip to buy some cattle at Boggy Depot. So Esther rode with her father-in-law Dixon to try to find Benjamin discussing along the way how their wagon was old and needed repair, you know, hopefully he had just broken down and was in the process of fixing it along the roadside. Why don't you read to us about that incident? Okay, this comes from page 57 and 58. I rendered a silent prayer. Deepaw, that's what I call Dixon, Deepaw moved quickly down the road until we pulled up in front of Benjamin's wagon. I could see the front wheel laying partway down the hill on some rocks. The wagon had been headed back home on the high side of the Blue River and looked like it had lost the wheel after it hit a boulder, perhaps in the dark. I jumped out and I yelled for Benjamin, Deepaw running behind me. I found Benjamin lying about halfway down the embankment and scrambled down to him. He lay motionless, his clothes wet from the water running over the rocks around him. I pulled him close and touched his face. His head had hit the rocks and was caked with blood. I cradled him in my lap and I moaned, tears streaming down my cheeks. The grief was so deep I couldn't breathe. Deepaw wrapped his arms around his son and me and we cried as we held the limp body of the one we loved so. We knew he was gone, but all that mattered was that we loved him and wanted him back. I am not sure how long we cried together, but dark was coming. Deepaw at last stood and gently pulled me up, skipping. He carried me into my home. I felt so broken in my heart. He brought Benjamin in to lay on the bed beside me. Esther, I will be back shortly, I promise. I will go get Levina to help clean up Benjamin and prepare him for burial. After he left, I crawled out of my bed. I dropped down to my knees. Why, oh why, Abba Manili, do you take everything I love from me? I wailed with such anguish. I had cried so many tears, there was nothing left of me. 
The loss of my child and a husband in the same year was more than I could bear. I reached my hands to the heaven and I wailed like a warrior. My life felt empty and so hollow at this point, but Papa raised me to be brave. There had to be more for me to do in this life. Oh, how did you even write that? That had to have been so hard. Uh, an interesting story I'll share with you real quick. I was writing this book and my husband and I take vacations and we're retired. So we were in South Texas in the RV camping and I was proofing this section and I was sitting there and he was across from me, probably scrolling on his phone or something. He looked over at me and he said, honey, what is wrong? <laughs> and there were tears just rolling down my oh. face. And he right. said, why are you crying? And I said, I said, I'm reading, I'm proofing my book. <laughs> it just was so sad. And he so said, sad. but it's your book. <laughs> and I said, I know, but it's still so sad. And he still to this day, he just can't get over the fact that I was crying over I my got your own, own, own words. <laughs> But it was so like, funny. why did I make this so sad? But it is because you fall in love with Benjamin and Esther, you know, and oh, then yes. even though I knew ahead of time that she had four husbands who died, I was like, no, like, <laughs> when I got to that point, I couldn't believe that you did that to me. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When I was reading that passage, I could not hold back the tears. I loved them together. She was so young too. She was only like 16 years old. By the time she had lost both her husband and then, you know, she had lost her baby and her father. So Benjamin was buried near the Blue River and Esther decided to, to move back to Durwood to be with her family where she ran home to her mother's arms. That part got me too. So around this time, we start to see the cattle stealing increasing and the quarterly meeting of the Choctaws and Chickasaws was taking place. And something interesting about Esther was she really seemed to want to know about what was going on with the tribes and the politics going on, like you had said earlier. So a lot of women stayed out of those, those topics. Um, and I think you explained that earlier that her dad was really Jesse. He was instrumental in making sure that she stayed uh, up to the no. So just when you think Esther may get a break, there's more drama in the family. So when Esther got home from the quarterly meeting, her mom and sister yelled at her to run to Rufus's house. That's again, her twin brother to check on him. Shots were heard coming from the area of his home. Feel free to read that passage aloud. I spun my horse towards Rufus's settlement and I kicked hard. I felt sick. I always had known when something happened to Rufus. We were twins. Whenever he fell and he hurt his knee while we were children, my knee hurt for a week. I didn't feel anything, though, so I believed he must still be okay. And stiff, I rode like the wind. I saw him on the front porch holding his Colt revolver, and my stomach dropped as he looked up at me. I jumped off thunder and I ran to Rufus just as he collapsed into my arms. His stomach had erupted with blood. Black powder was all over his shirt. I put my hand to his stomach to stop the bleeding. I felt it felt hot to the touch. Dealey, his wife, held their daughter, Laura, born just two weeks before. The baby was crying and Dealey was screaming. They took our cattle, she sobbed. Esther, they shot Rufus. No, another no moment. 
So, yes. ouch. That's her twin brother. Yes. So listeners, if you want to hear more about what happened to Rufus, you'll have to go get a copy of Little Bird, which you can find on ChickasawPress.com, Amazon.com, and just about anywhere you buy your books. Sorry for the shameless plug and the cliffhanger, but you're just going to have to read it. Oh, that's so sad. Okay. But Esther does find love again. Tell us about Mr. Houston Brown. Well, uh, Esther was hook up, hooked up with the Browns to stay with them when she moved back to Durwood because it was it was quite a journey and she needed a break. And the Dixons were friends with the Browns. And so she was she was often there to spend the night because it was not safe for her to travel out alone for a very long period of time and definitely not at night. And she wanted to get home to her sister and her mother and, of course, her horse Thunder. Um, so, uh, she felt like this was a time when, um, she needed her family around her because of all the painful memories of her losses. And so she met Houston, uh, during the time that she stayed, um, with the Browns and he was their young son and they were about the same age, but Houston was a constable for the Chickasaw Nation. And of course, I know that she felt like he wanted to query more about what happened to her husband but he felt sorry that she was in such emotional pain that he kind of stood back and left that alone for a while. But they yeah. did meet later and they did fall in love and they did have two beautiful children together. And they seem, he seems like he was a good man, right? He was a strong, honest man. And he was my great grandfather, great, great grandfather. And um, he was well loved by the entire family. I think he was just one of those good guys, you know, and right. he adored Esther, absolutely adored her. I'm just now making that connection too, you know, because Ella is one of their children, right? Yeah. So that lineage goes down to you. Okay. Yeah. So Houston Brown was your great, great, great grandfather. Great, yeah. great grandfather. Yes. Oh, great, great, great. Okay. Two greats. Okay. Um, okay. So welcome Houston Brown to the picture. And so someone, <laughs> so many good characters in this, um, someone significant married them. So tell us why he was a significant figure. Well, it was so interesting when I came across her having to bring this certificate of marriage. And then I looked at it and, then, and, and there was the signature of Palmer Mosley. Palmer Mosley just, it just, took me aback. I couldn't believe that. And during that time, Palmer Mosley was a judge. He was a lawyer and then a judge. So to the listeners, I want to tell you, Palmer Mosley was the 20th and the 23rd governor of the great Chickasaw nation. Well, and, and so, he married your great, great grandparent. Yes. That's, and he, okay, is, go ahead. he was so notable because he was well known for being one of the best interpreters for the Chickasaws to the U.S. government, and, and he had that skill. And for them to have known him, they had to have known him for, you know, Houston Brown had to have known him well for him right. to have married them. So that just took me home to a place where Esther was really, truly involved in what was happening politically in her surroundings. Yeah. Not only was she married to a constable, but that constable was in association with people who had high places with the Chickasaw Nation. So Good that point. was a real revelation and exciting find for me. I bet. <laughs> 
be like, oh my gosh, that name sounds familiar. Or did you just happen to go look into who he was? Did you already know that he was? I already knew who he was. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I see all this research is so much fun. You and I were talking before we started. Listeners, we probably talked for like 20 minutes just about research before we started. So, so they get married and then there's additional good news. Esther gets pregnant again. Yes. And that's when she has the two girls, Ella and Belle. And Ella is my great grandmother. Okay. And that's what's so great about the story is it evolves into the complication of the story because Ella and Belle marry two Irish men, McSwain brothers, J.D. Mm. and Charlie McSwain. Belle marries Charlie and Ella marries J.D. And in, in research, there is so much about this, these people. And my research, it just evolved into a whole bigger piece of my story. Right. It, it took you down a whole new path. Well, I I said I jumped into a rabbit hole and I really did jump into a rabbit hole when I found who these people were and the newspaper articles just started flowing. I knew knew there was a murder involved because of transcripts, but I didn't know how it actually hit. And my, my grandfather didn't speak often of this this murder there was a little bit that he would share really but he kept that pretty private so scandalous so scandalous scandalous. yes isn't it funny how times have changed like when we research our ancestors we're like like this guy behind me here he killed an innocent non-native man just because he was angry about the Dawes rolls his name's Tom Davis so he gets pardoned by President Grover Cleveland and that's why I'm here today but you know, he, he was someone that my great grandmother, Ella, never would talk about. And I don't know if she just didn't know or if she wanted to hide that part of our lives here. I'm like, Hey, guess what he did? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. My daughter was like, don't put his picture up. He's a scary man. And I was like, you know what? He needs love just like everybody else does. So of course I'm going to put his picture up. He's a real part of our history. So we want those people known. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I think it's sweet that Houston in the book, you talk about how he bought her a Studebaker wagon because of the feeble wagon that had killed her first husband, Benjamin. And something else that makes me a big fan of Houston is his determination to find Rufus's killers. So one day Houston rides up to the house with friends and brother Jerry, Henry and Johnson, I believe, and said someone had been to Rufus's house um, oh no, someone had seen Rufus's horse at a white man's ranch. So Houston packs some clothes and a pistol. Esther begs him not to go. I mean, clearly she probably has nervousness about her husband getting in trouble, seeing what had happened with her first husband. So she saw the crows that day and felt it was a bad sign, but he went anyway. So please share more with us from your book. The sun danced a circle around the clouds as daylight broke. A clear breeze dispelled the heat coming into daybreak, another morning in Indian Territory. A cottonwood tree close to the house whisked its branches against the house, making little crackling sounds like a small fire burning. It was a fire. It was a fire in my heart, a pain of not knowing where my Houston was or if he was safe. 
It was a pain my papa asked me to surpass, but again, I was having a day that challenged my bravery. I had only slept but a few restless hours. I stood on the porch at sunrise, trying not to wake Ella, and I saw sun dancers at a distance, horses moving in and out of the sunlight. I blinked, thinking I was seeing things. Their approach was powerful, and at the front of them was Houston. He towed a beautiful little pink pony, my Rufus's pony. I would know it anywhere. Jerry's with, Jerry was with him, but I did not see Bogle or Keel. I stepped into the shadows of the cottonwoods, reached my hands to the sky in praises, and kissed the wet, soft muscle of my brother's horse. And once again, the horses being such a big part of their lives. I mean, he represented Rufus, this horse, I would assume. Yes. Um, so it was a big moment for her. What was interesting in my research is I actually found where um, Houston had gone into uh, this man, uh, this white man rancher's house and was in battle and his brother and I found documentation of that in a story that someone had written in Oklahoma History Museum. And uh, through my research, I found the real the real facts, which enabled me to prove what my grandfather had always said, that Houston was determined to find this horse for or Esther. And so it just, it was like I was on a path and somebody, an ancestor was standing behind me and guiding me as I came across such new revelations that enabled me to complete more stories of her life, real stories that I actually found documentation of. Absolutely. So that's interesting. And, and I also find I, I didn't realize so much, you know, most of this has been your research, but you also are going back in time thinking about things your grandpa told you. And were you, were you a little girl when he told you some of these stories or as he aged, were you like, I've got to start capturing some of the things that he knows because I want to preserve my family's history. I was just a small little girl. He died when I was seven of leukemia. And so, um, I think he just lived in, in the most influential part of my growing up. And I stayed on the ranch with my grandparents while my parents worked in Oklahoma City during the week. And then they would come on the weekends and because they couldn't find a babysitter. So yeah. they just put me with grandma and grandpa uh. during the week. <laughs> so essentially they were my second parents. And my papa, uh, Harry Maxwain, was just hugely influenced me on the on the culture and the stories so in these stories that you will read within the book those yeah. are stories that he told me those wow. are the tales that he told me which is so exciting that I was able yes. to still remember those stories mm -hmm. and share them so that my grandchildren will read them and see them and understand them was it crazy to have had those memories in your memory bank and then you would find something research-wise and go that's what he was talking about it was and it was just almost to the point that I felt like I was being guided by him in some yes way. yes and and, and that oh. meant so much to me you Goosebumps. know Goosebumps. <laughs> sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you no I just you know um it was like doors were closing and then I would take another step and that door would open it. 
And then right. there would be this new, and this is happening to me again in the sequel. So I will tell you. So oh it's very gosh. exciting. So I think, I think I'm here on this life right now to finish this tale all the way through. I really yeah. believe that. Your ancestors are coming forward going, yes. tell our story. Yeah, keep going. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Big responsibility, but somebody's got to do it, right? Yes. Um, so you also had told me the story about something that your grandpa had said to you about being cold. Tell us yes. that story. Okay. Well, um, he would always tell me kapasai, and I'm not sure I'm saying it right, but he would say kapasi or kapasai. And I'd go get my coat and we'd go somewhere. And when I moved back to the Chickasaw Nation 22 years ago, I was with some language people and we were talking about it. And I said that word and they laughed at me because I thought it meant go get your coat. And right. it actually means it's cold outside. <laughs> That's what God was like. But I did exactly what he told me to do when he said that yeah. word. Because I yeah. knew when he said it that I was supposed to go get my coat. So it's so funny. Uh, so it, it wasn't like anyone had told you direct um, translation. It was just you knew that because he spoke a lot of Chickasaw to you, right? Right, all the time. And so there's many words that just little words. But you know, when he said them, I and he looked at me, I knew what he meant, and that was time for me to go get my coat. Yeah, we we're going somewhere. <laughs> So, but the word actually meant it's cold outside. So just love that I love, story. I love the knowledge of that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, these, these stories that he told you, it's kind of like he, I feel like I didn't know him obviously, but I feel like he was telling you this stuff for a reason. Like, like he wanted to carry those stories on, you know, when I tell my daughter stories of her great grandmother who died when my daughter was like two or three. I, I'm wanting her to remember them and pass them on to her kids. And so I think it's a beautiful thing that he did by telling you these stories. Oh, I think so too. It was a great, great um, opportunity for me to, as I found the information, uh, bring those stories back to life. And, yes. and that was a blessing for me. And you're honoring him so much by doing this. Absolutely. So his words worked. So Houston, not, worked. yeah, exactly. I mean, look at now it's in a book and there's going to be a second book. <laughs> <laughs> By the right. way, what are you going to call that second book? Do you know yet? Like Little Bird 2 or no, The Crows actually, Were Right? <laughs> if you notice in the book, Ella's nickname was Eagle or Little Eagle. Oh, that's right. So, so I'm thinking that that's probably going to be the name of my sequel is I Little Love Eagle. it. Stay tuned, listeners. You heard it right here. <laughs> Got a little spoiler. So Houston not only brought back Rufus's horse, but he also had found his killer. And I won't give away who the killer was. Again, you'll just have to read the book. And unfortunately for Esther, Houston was later murdered. And Esther once again had to face pain and sorrow, only comforted by family and her faith in Abba Benili. The book says, I saw my three crows on the corral fence once looked at me iridescent feathers glistening like he was sweating tears he bobbed his head and cawed cawed like a scalding parent leave me fala i said stop reminding me of my pain i turned away and started to close the door get i shouted i waved and two crows flew off the third paced along the corral fence i closed the door to the sound of the fading cause of the truth talker bellowing of death ah the crows so 
Although there are some painful stories in the book, there are also some wonderful moments as well. For instance, tell us the story of the butterfly. Well, I love this story because um, I always got myself involved in in uh, the stomp dance, you know, because that's yeah. our tradition. And the story that I was told that um, the elders would go to the river and they would have council meetings and they would sit around and render their prayers and say things uh, a blessing and talk about things that they needed to talk about. And then they would sing songs and they would hold hands. And one time they were holding hands and doing their little walk together. And this butterfly came into the circle and it began to encircle one of the elders. And they would have to pause between the butterfly moving so they would not overcome the butterfly. So they began to just stomp. So that would slow down their passage as they would move around. That's the beginning of the stomp dance. And so... To them, the great spirit was sending this butterfly. So when they would have council meetings, when they would see the butterfly, they felt like the great spirit was there with them. But my great-great-grandfather, I think, believed this Houston Brown, which passed down this story, that the stomp dance was created because they did not want to run over the butterfly that was there, the great spirit. So they would shuffle their feet to slow down their walk to encompass the butterflies surrounding them. And I thought that was such a beautiful story. I love that. And of course it's incorporated in the book um, told, I think by Esther to Ella, right? Okay. And I love the story of Ella and what she did with the cord. Can you also tell us that story? Well, what's interesting is that kind of evolved from me finding Houston Brown's ancestors, his parents, I found the actual roll card and it's very rare to find a roll card with the Native American names on it. But his parents were Panacha, his father, and Choloki. And Panacha is a name given to someone who is called the cordage maker who makes cords. So my grandfather always told me that his father would weave, would take horse's tail and weave it into ropes and cords. And one of the stories that he told was that the warrior became braver because he used the cord instead of an actual weapon. It was the weapon. It would lasso, it would lasso the horse for young children to climb on it. It would trip the intruder or the enemy so they would fall. You could use the cord to tie them up. You could use the cord to shuffle yourself up the side of a tree to escape a mountain lion or whatever. So the cord was an instrument of protection. And so Ella became very involved because her father, Houston, made this cord. And there's some humorous stories involving that I'm not going to share because I want you to read sure, the book. Yeah. <laughs> but around the cord and as a little girl, she was fascinated with her mother making these cords are ropes, but they called them cords back then. And she actually became a brave little eagle warrior at the time when she needed to use those cords. So that's how that evolved. And that really was true that I found his actual name, which is Cordage Maker, Houston's father. That's so neat. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, she does become a little warrior. So you'll have to read that. It's a funny part of the book. 
Um, and so there still was an ongoing unrest in Indian country. Tell us about the Act of 1871. Well, the Act of 1871 was the Indian Appropriations Act, and it declared that indigenous people were no longer considered members of a sovereign nation. So that meant that the U.S. government uh, didn't have to establish treaties with them anymore. So that really changed the position of uh, the, the first American people in relationship with the U.S. government, which they thought they had, but 1871 removed that. So what happens, I think, is it changes their, their strength of believing that their land is actually going to be their land. And so I think it really became a stronger fear for Esther from that time forward until she met with the Dawes commissioners uh, about, what, 15, yeah. 20 years later, that she was able to battle what she lived in fear of for about 20 years. And I think that that's something that even I myself have had a hard time grasping. Like once the the folks came over on the Trail of Tears and then settled, there was a lot that happened for many years, all this unrest and not knowing what was going to happen. It took a while for them to get their land allotments. <clears throat> And then even when they received them, they weren't sure what was going to happen next. It just had to have been a very scary time for so many of our ancestors for so many generations. And then there was also the issue of whiskey being sold to and amongst Indians and how it was becoming a problem. So much going on and most of it was challenging and the strength of these people was truly impressive. So Esther continues to open her heart and she marries once again to a man named Jim Wolfe in 1880. She had more children along the way, Hattie, Maddie, and Francis. And you'll find it interesting how Esther met Mr. Wolf when you read the book. I know you had to fill in some of the blanks about maybe like emotion and reasons for different happenings when writing the book, but were there certain things you found along the way, such as diaries or any sentiment that helped you understand what Esther may have felt with all that she went through? Well, I was very fortunate, and I don't think I've shared this with you, but um, my my grandfather, Harry, had sisters Bessie, Minnie, and Romy. He had three sisters, all okay. of which lived until I was in my 20s. And so, so crazy. And they lived, all of them lived in Ada and Chickasaw housing, except for, well, one of them lived in Kansas City. But I was close to all because my grandfather died when I was seven. So for the next 15 years, I experienced my time with my great aunts. They wow. all, um, two of them didn't have any children. So I was their grandchild. And so they shared, <laughs> I have journals where they wrote a lot about, especially a lot about Houston Brown and about J.D. McSwain. I have stuff oh that they, and, which was really, and then I have two Bibles, Aunt Bessie's Bible, and I have Aunt Jackie's Bible. She she changed her name for Romy to Jackie. I think it was Romy Jacqueline, but anyway, oh. I have their Bibles, and in their Bibles, they had written all kinds of things about what happened and you know, mama married this person or mama did this and they would put it in the sidebars of the Bible because I don't know, I guess they didn't have any place or paper to write on. I'm not sure. But I would take them down to the farm that I live on now and we would walk the land and the pecan trees growing 
and we would walk around the pond and they would tell me the stories that I missed from after my grandfather's passing. So I had a continuum with them, which was fabulous. So That's yes, amazing. I, had, I had material, good material. And that so I shared so much with more you, than most people. <laughs> I shared with you the picture of Ella and her um, um, dress up white yeah. lady outfits sitting down with her um you know three um daughters standing behind her and they yeah. were quite elegant Indian ladies and I enjoyed my time with them immensely oh that's so cool so this is why we all need to take a lesson today about sharing stories with our nieces nephews children whatever the case is even if they don't want to hear it just pepper in some stories here and there they will appreciate it someday and if you have a chance to keep a journal that's a great idea too. make it to where someone can find it when you pass on um i really appreciate that your family gave you all of these gold nuggets I'm so yeah. jealous <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about ella and bell earlier so esther also placed her daughters ella and bell and again those were houston's daughters as well at ages 11 and 8 in the chickasaw nation run female seminary in uh bloomfield academy so when houston was alive he had wanted the girls in boarding school but esther was unsure about the idea the tribes were considering boarding schools so the, their children could learn to live in a non-native world However, they were also fearful of the stories they had heard about some of these boarding schools. So I see the dichotomy there between the two and, and the worries about that. So, I mean, understandably so, right? Yes. Well, my papa told me that boarding schools took away their language and also their culture. So Houston, because he was a constable and he was so politically involved, I think, and his relationship with uh, wanting to uh, have a good relationship with like maybe Palmer Mosley and others that he felt like this was a, the only way his children could get a really good education. But Esther, right. she wanted them home. She wanted them to mm -hmm. understand the culture more. She wanted them to just learn to read from the Bible like she was taught and she didn't want them to go away to school. So, but Aww. they did, but they did. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, so the Bloomfield Academy, do you know much about it? Was it a typical boarding school? I mean, it was Chickasaw Nation run, so I would assume maybe it was a better experience than some of the typical boarding schools that were non-native run. I think that, you know, the educational system was good there. And I think that the time that they spent there um, was, was probably um, uh, developed into something good later on in life. But I think some of them resented uh, that they had to go there because they had to move away from home. Oh, and that I, yeah. you know, they couldn't just go to school there and then go home that night. They had to actually live there. And I don't think the living quarters was quite as good as we had hoped it would be. So mm, yeah, I think their education was good. I think that, and the, and the meaning of that was good. Yeah. I think, it, I think it originally had kind of started, started with missionaries, the plan you know, for the, to educate the first Americans through missionary schools. So I yeah. think that's how the idea first began, but I really don't know much about it. My uh, grandfather actually went to Murray State for two years to college 
And um, but he did not have fond memories of um, his um, great aunts going to uh, Bloomfield School at hmm. all. Uh, but uh, they were educated women. All of my great aunts were very educated. Yeah. So I was Good amazed at their at their knowledge and and how, yeah. how much they understood. Um, you know, the culture and the world, even though they were, you know, coming from that time where it would be difficult to get all the education that they needed. Yeah. Well, and I, I totally understand why the tribes were pushing it as well. It's like, if you do not educate yourself to live in this white men and woman's world, you may not survive. So we need you to go to school. <laughs> and yet at the same time, some of them were sending their babies off to have terrible experiences. It's really sad because I mean, and then some of them didn't have a choice. They had to send their kids away. So it's a very rough uh, time, probably a rough decision. So, but once again, our first Americans saw encroachment on their land. What occurred in 1889 to enhance that fear? Well, the land round of 1899 began the disposal of the uh, federal public domain in Oklahoma. So families uh, had to choose 160 acres, and, um, and it was mostly in the western part of the state. They didn't really interfere as much with the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations, but it, it felt to the Native American, the first American, it felt like it was the end of the opportunity for them to actually own their own land. Yeah. And, and it was very scary when all these settlers, of course, it was an exciting time because at that time, you know, Oklahoma became the 46th state and we're very happy that we have our state here. So, sure. uh, but it was a scary time for first Americans during that, that land run and what was happening over in the Western part of Oklahoma. Understandably. Then Esther and her children see a huge loss once more with the death of Esther's husband, Jim Wolfe, in 1891. And three years later, she marries her fourth and final husband, Holmes Micklish. Now, this story threw me for a loop even more than the previous stories of Esther's husbands, which were already devastating. So, yeah, believe it or not, listeners, there's a lot I've left out and there's a lot you don't know that you need to know. I don't want to give you too many spoilers, but just know there's a lot to discover still in this book. So Esther's daughters, Elle and Belle, were not supportive of her marriage to Holmes Micklish. Why so? Well, um, Esther and Belle both married Irish, very wealthy cattlemen, and they were huge landowners. I think that Charlie McSwain owned somewhere around 7,000 acres wow. north of Tishomingo. So that is a lot of land. And to Holmes McClish, who was full-blood uh, Chickasaw, he was not happy. He felt like the Irish and the white men were coming into Indian territory and marrying women for the sole purpose of getting more land. And so he didn't feel like that the these two men deserved these two ladies. And so there was a big resentment. And so it separated kind of this last marriage, separated Esther quite a bit from her two oldest girls, Ella and Belle, because of the dissension that Holmes had against 
these two Irish men, even though Esther knew and watched them fall in love with these two Irish men. And yeah, that in the book, she saw that Holmes did not. Holmes had been a previous uh, man she had known from way back when, to when she was nine years old. He had been a neighbor. He'd been a, a, a um, large part of the Chickasaw Nation. His um, uh, brother, Richard McClish, is the founder of the city of Ardmore in Oklahoma, and he oh. was an attorney. Really? So, yes. So there is a lot of of uh, her being involved again and kind of the political aspect of the Chickasaw Nation by her marrying Holmes McClish. But she had known him a long time and um, she was ready to move on again in her life, I think. So yeah, having, having lost Jim Wolf and she had three small children still to raise again. That's true. They, yeah. were, ten, they were 10 years or more younger at the time that she married Holmes than Ella and Belle and Ella and Belle were already married. So she needed a man to help her take care of those other children. So this is kind of her path that she took. But Ella and Belle were not happy with this marriage. So she's kind of in the middle, it sounds like. So you've got Holmes, who's like, I don't like those Irish boys. They're here to take your land, ladies. And yet at the same time, they, the, you know, in return, the girls aren't too happy with him for not liking their husbands. So then we've got major drama starring. Esther and Holmes have a little boy also named Holmes who happened to be born the same day his father was murdered. What? Yep. So <laughs> I'm not going to tell much more about this story, but I do want our listeners to hear about Rhett, Oklahoma, and it is in Oklahoma, right? Yes. Trying to remember. Okay. Tell us about Rhett and what happened there. Or what well, would go on in Wreck? <laughs> well, the Comanches lived in Wreck. Wreck was, if you if you look at the state of Oklahoma, that is kind of on the western side of I-35. And that okay. area was Comanche territory, okay? And she was always told as a little girl, don't go over to Wreck, that, you know, that you, you might run into the Comanches. <laughs> well, Holmes had land over there because that was part of Chickasaw country as well. And so if you look at the area around Turner Falls and that area on the western part of the state, that was still Chickasaw country, very much yeah. so. But just south of there was Wreck and all of that area that was Comanche. And so there, there was chances that the Comanche would come up into that territory and there would be violence. So um, Holmes had to go over there quite a bit. Uh, to take care of his cattle and his land he had there because that was Chickasaw land that he had. And right. so, so um, she would not go with him and she was worried that something would happen. But in her head, she still remembered her father telling her that wreck was not a place that you would go. And so he, he would travel there. And on his journey back, there is something that happens that uh, conflicts with how his death occurred so oh my gosh it was so crazy and I hate to leave you listeners wondering but you will not believe this intertwined mixed up story that happens at the end of this book and it was late at night when I was finishing reading and I kept saying oh my gosh oh my gosh to myself I was home alone by the way too oh my goodness and but for two days, I thought about the ending and I had to text you and, and tell you I was hung up on it. It was just, oh my gosh. Again, I'm not trying to make you listeners go crazy with this, but about not knowing, but 
you have to read the book. It it's so interesting, and that and it really this part of the book is what spurs the next book, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's more to know about Rick and the Comanches and Ella. Um, the story will really, the sequel will be based on Ella's viewpoint and her relationship with her sister, Belle, and uh, Belle's husband, Charlie, who um, who is involved with this murder. And so uh, you're going to find out that there is a lot of straining relationship between families back then in regards mm -hmm. to the allotment. And you brought that up earlier and allotments will cause a lot of anger and animosity between, um, you know, neighbors. And that's what's mm. going to happen. And you're going to learn more also about how the um, United States Supreme Court gets involved in uh. this later on. So in the sequel. And I'm not going to tell you anymore, but I think you'll uh, find that there are going to be some more twists and turns involved. <laughs> After you get off this call, you need to get on your computer and finish it up and go ahead and send it to Chicksaw Press <laughs> so we can read it because I'm going nuts. I really, I can't wait to see the next part of this because I'm with you. Like I have done a lot of research and if I had stopped my research like three years ago and had written a book from there. It would only been like a fraction of the story because what I know now about my family story and much less 10 years from now, if I keep researching. So you must have just been like so excited when you found out more information. Oh, I was. I was jumping up and down. I couldn't believe it. And I actually found more about what happened, further information about what happened in the end of the first book in more yeah. greater detail, which will be revealed in the sequel. So dun, 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 <laughs> more to come. <laughs> yeah. We must know. Well, you know, something I was thinking too, that we didn't discuss is um, Chihuahua Lowak. So tell us about that phrase. What does it mean? Okay. Well, my grandfather always felt like I had an enormous amount of in energy. And he told me that I was like Esther. I had the Chihuahua Loa. And I said, what is that? And he said, that was God's fire. And he would always say, you have the Chihuahua Loa, slow down my child. And he just meant that I was just so full of life and energy. And I love that term. And I love using it with my grandchildren and everything because it is heartfelt to me that he shared that with me. I love that. Yeah, I think you and I were talking earlier about how we think we may both have that. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fire in our bellies. <laughs> so questions that still need to be answered that you'll find out when you read the book, how did Jim Wolf die? What happened to Esther's sister, Lottie, and to their mother, Annie? What become became of Esther's beloved horse, Thunder? There's a lot more to discover. So something else y'all need to know, um, all of us researchers of our ancestors know you never stop researching and you always seem to learn more, even if each new fact is years apart from the last, because studying our first American ancestors is extremely difficult. So I want to encourage you, from a personal perspective, please don't give up. Look at what Mary Ruth is doing. If she stopped a few years ago, she wouldn't know half of these things that she knows. Um, although she does seem to know a lot more than most of us because she had ancestors who actually passed down the information. Uh, something again, that we can all take a lesson from. Is there anything else you'd like to share about these great ancestors of yours? Um, well, I, I, I know that uh, when you research, it's so important that 
that if there is a hint there, that you don't just ignore that hint, that you you touch on that hint in Ancestry or in a newspaper, and you just keep adding. I put in alerts in newspaper uh, of names and events, and then the newspaper comes back to me. Now, it might not have anything to do, but I have found revelations that just light up my world yeah. uh, by doing that. So just, um, you know, I, I'll be... And going somewhere with my husband and I'll look down at my phone and I'll say, oh my gosh, you won't believe what I just found out. <laughs> and the funny thing is he's probably like, this is important. Why? I'm always doing that to my husband too, where I'm like, oh, you won't believe this, but so-and-so shot so-and-so. And he's like, now remind me where that is in the tree. I'm like, this is so important. Don't ask me that. Ask me why, why did he shoot him? <laughs> so never stop researching. It's my thing. Yes. Never stop that. I am so with you on that. I'm glad you're telling our listeners that. Um, I hope they'll take that to heart. And also I'd like to give a shout out to uh, the Chickasaw Cultural Center there, right? That's where you are today? No, I'm at the Chickasaw Press today. Sorry, Chickasaw Press. That's where yeah. you are today. Yeah. And that's who yeah. published your book. Yeah, so the publisher, they publish numerous books every year, lots of children's books, lots of language books and cookbooks. And um, the White Dog Press is what uh, published my historical fiction, and it's done quite well. So we are very excited to uh, be spreading the word. I know, I think I told you earlier that Austin College in Texas is um, teaching my book in an English class, and I'm going to do a question and answer with them, which will be great to talk to college students about um, historical yeah. facts about our Chickasaw Nation and the times of our people. I think that is a perfect book to be taught in colleges, probably even high school level. I don't know if, if younger kids... Um... I think younger kids could read it probably just depends on yeah, the it's on the young readers uh list reading list so okay. it fits into that because there's no language or anything like that in it so yeah absolutely yeah exactly well you know um I have a lot of homeschool mom friends I was homeschooled myself growing up I did not homeschool my child but um I'd like to give uh my homeschool mom friends a heads up this would be great for you to read with your children um a great book for them to also learn the history about what was going on at the time um in addition to the great story that's in Little Bird so listeners go out and get this book Little Bird by Mary Ruth Barnes hurry and read it so you can be ready for the sequel grab it at Chickasaw Press or Amazon or even at the First Americans Museum in Oklahoma City while you're visiting the museum and be sure to check out Mary Ruth's website at maryruthbarnes.com that's m a r y r u t h b a r n e s .com where you can see her paintings books and upcoming book signings and more so before we go, Mary Ruth, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? I, I would. I would like to say this. In the light of the moon, our silent ancestors walked, moving among us, giving us hope and giving us truth. The truth of their ancient promise is not made with their words, but by the lives of those who have experienced the past. Please keep researching. I love it. I love it. Take it to heart, y'all. Our ancestors that survived the Trail of Tears came to Indian Territory and still faced many adversities, fears, and trials. And yet their spirit lives on in what we do today. 
So perhaps the Fala or the crows still talk to us today. If so, I bet they'd tell the stories of Esther and her sorrows and loss, but of the loves she proudly held in her heart. And maybe they'd tell us to carry on as she did and to learn to find joy in family and memories of loved ones. May the journey of our ancestors inspire us and others to continue to carry God's fire, that Jehovah in our souls. And may we never forget those who came before us. Yakoki. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.